This is Erased. I'm Colette Bauer-Zinn. And this is Lisa Johnson. Two Black moms bonded by bluntness, tenacity, and an unwavering commitment to creating communities of support. Every Thursday, we're exploring where the intersections of education, race, and culture collide, dissecting interracial issues to help you navigate and thrive, despite being marginalized. Welcome to another episode of Erased. I'm your co-host, Lisa Johnson. I'm Colette Bauer-Zinn. And we are so happy you decided to join us again. Colette, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? I am great. I'm particularly excited about today's topic. Yes, ma'am. We are talking about affinity groups. And they have made such a difference in my life as a parent, because my school also has an affinity group for parents, but also newly for my elementary school age children. Amen. I know. That is a, um, a new thing for the school, and it's already proving to be Hugely effective. So let's back up a little bit. Affinity groups. They're identity-based support groups that can be vital lifelines for students, particularly for students of color in predominantly white schools. Um, Affinity groups are intended to provide a sense of belonging, which, of course, is essential to the emotional health and well-being of our children. Amen. Do you have affinity groups at your schools? Yes. Yes. Both do. So they both have affinity groups that are family affinity groups. Ah. The my older child does have the ability to attend student affinity right. group as well, but my elementary child doesn't. I do want to throw out there before we continue that we are once again live in studio <laughs> with masks on. Yes, it has become so normalized. I did not mention that. Right. Hopefully the sound is still stellar. So today, thanks largely to the increased public attention of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice in our schools, there's a finally widespread understanding of the importance and need of these groups. But creating the groups is actually just the tip of the iceberg. You know, do affinity groups really make a difference in the lives of students? How do they need to be set up in order to be impactful? So we are going to talk about that today, and we have with us Seattle Girls School's Rosetta Lee to help us discuss it. The one, the only, the in. Incredible, Rosetta Lee is an experienced educator and diversity consultant whose passion and expertise ranges from science and ethics for middle school students, gender equity and STEM education, cross-cultural communication, gender bias, relational aggression, identity development, anti-bullying, brain and learning, (laughs) and more. Driven toward empowering youth to make a better future for themselves and their communities, and at the same time, working with adults to help create inclusive communities that help empower youth of all races, ethnic origins, genders, abilities, sexual orientations, and other identities. But I will say, one of my favorite educators, because she is simply all around dope and straight up with it, Rosetta, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. What a wonderful introduction. I hope I live up to the hype. Are you kidding me? I mean, I'm exhausted just reading all that. What don't you do? Right? I feel inadequate. I know. (laughs) So, Rosetta, we like to kick stuff off by asking our guests, when was the last time you felt erased? And by that, of course, we mean diminished, not heard or seen, made to feel invisible for whatever reason, your race, age, ethnicity, gender, whatever. Yeah, I would say actually it is an ongoing thing that is happening right now with the rise of anti-Asian violence that is happening. The number of communities that are silent about it is definitely disheartening uh, just because I think anti-Asian harassment has often been sort of swept under the rug or not considered as bad. Um, and so that's that's definitely made me feel erased um, when 
I see yet another occasion and I see a wave of schools just not talking about it. Right. Oh, let's just have a moment there because she's so spot on. <laughs> Absolutely. I think a lot of the schools tend to wait until something happens that's a little bit more maybe closer to home before they address something like that. My thing is, why wait? Especially Correct. now. Anticipate rather yes. than clean up. Yes. Come on. Yeah. Rosetta, as we jump into this conversation, because you are the expert, what is your quick and dirty version of affinity group? I think about ultimately schools have multiple types of groups when it comes to identity. One is an affinity group, which is a bringing together of people who share, have an identifier in common, whether that's race, whether that's gender, whether that's sexual orientation, ability, etc. Um, and it's for folks who identify as members of groups. So when they're having conversations, they're speaking from the I perspective. So this is not about, oh, I have my best friend who is in this group, or I have family members who, who are in this group. It's actually about, this is me and this is my experience. And then sometimes schools will actually try to have affinity group light by having alliance groups, which is bringing together people who identify a certain way and their allies. So the classic example that we see, for example, is the GSA, what used to be called the Gay Straight Alliance. Many schools are actually calling them um, gender and sexuality alliances. So it's actually for people who are uh, cisgender and transgender or people who are straight and who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, etc. So I would say those groups are about uplifting the community, but it's not necessarily a private sort of getting together of the family, right? It's like the extended family. And how do they help in the short and in the long term? Why are they so important? In the short term, the thing that's really beneficial is there is unspoken but real impact of being one of the only ones. Um, when you think about young people who are often in the numerical minority, we talk about children of color, especially black children in independent schools, we're talking about a significantly lower number, right? And then when you especially consider places like elementary schools, which often um, have even fewer than middle schools and high schools, they may be the only child who looks like them or comes from the same background in their classroom. And so when you walk into a room or you walk into a space and other people look like you, I think there is an immediate psychological benefit there. And then this is also a space that can have unapologetic affirmation of identity. Uh, I'm going to describe the four pillars that I've been talking about recently. Which, one, which is pride, right? How do we create these spaces to instill and increase pride in oneself, where they come from, how they identify? And then there is also protection, which is when you encounter things like bullying or negative comments or somebody like not treating you well because of who you are, where you come from, what are some things you can do? And then uh, there is preparation. Uh, in this world, especially when you're in the numerical minority, um, I think there are times when folks expect to learn from you. Like you get asked all kinds mm -hmm. of questions and um, how do you prepare for that moment of being able to say things like, you know, I don't represent everybody in my group, but this is my experience. Like preparing them to uh, engage more deeply with other groups. Uh, and then ultimately, I think young people need do need opportunity to practice in a safe space. So when the teacher, I feel like they're treating me more harshly, what are some things we can do? Not only do we talk about that, it's also like, do you want to say it to me now? Do you want to say it out loud? How did that sound? Let's get let's give you feedback, et cetera. That can have huge benefits for kids who are, 
you know, coming from historically marginalized groups that ex experience invisibility or stereotyping in our society all the time and are also in the numerical minority in our independent schools and then often are given this unofficial charge of being the educator of dominant groups. Amen. So you mentioned initially when you first started talking elementary school, mm -hmm. I just want you to talk a little bit more about mm -hmm. having these types of spaces and what they look like in elementary school, because I feel like so many people are still afraid of, you know, ruining the innocence <laughs> and putting thoughts in their ideas and separating each other. And so I just want you to speak on that just sure. a little bit. And what I find interesting is that this idea of ruining innocence, I, we really have to let that go because the reality is everything in the research says children notice difference and they start to absorb biases pretty quickly. Amen. Right? So Say how, it again. How early, how early, how early oh, does gosh. that start? Um, by six months of age, infants can actually start, start noticing uh, different racial features, whether that's, you know, skin color, eye shape, hair texture, etc. Now, six months olds are often uh, pre-verbal, so they won't tell you that they're noticing differences, but you can do things like measure gaze times because they will stare at people and things that are unfamiliar versus that are familiar. And by 10 months of the age, uh, many of them are actually starting to show preference. You can have people from with all different racial features hold out the exact same toy and they will reach to in-group members or members that look like their primary caretaker. And wow. I mean, a lot of folks get anxious and I'm like, no, 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 this is an evolutionary thing because the more you look like me, the more likely we're genetically related and therefore we're hardwired for in-group bias. And then if you look like my caretaker, right. you might feed me or take care of me or protect me, right? It's a survival thing, but yes. we got to let go of this idea of uh, kids don't notice difference or kids don't have biases. Kids notice difference and they're wired <laughs> for bias, right? Um, like gender is another one that has a really early marker. By three years of age, most kids know their own gender, other people's gender, and they're starting to pick, it, pick up on gender roles, mm -hmm. right? With storybooks and picture books, they'll start doing things like pointing and labeling. That's a girl and that's a boy and mm -hmm. that's a girl. And if you show them a counter stereotypical image, like a masculine looking man holding a baby and wearing an apron, they will tell you there's something weird to that message. Right. Okay. Um, right. And five years old is a really <laughs> critical stage uh, because that's where biases actually start to get sealed in. Five-year-olds are actually developmentally wired to notice difference, be curious about difference, and they will talk about difference. This is the time, that critical stage, when they're pointing and noticing and asking questions, right? And what I find frustrating is that adults will satisfy their curiosity about everything except for human difference, right? The, the child will be like, what's a square? And the adult's like, oh, it's a shape with four sides. And they're like, you know, what is pink? And we're like, it's a, it's a color between white and red. And they'll ask, why does that person have different skin than me? Or why is that man holding that man's hand? And we'll say, shh, if we don't talk to them and we even shush them, they pick up on this idea of talking about human difference is not an okay thing to do. It's a bad thing to do. And the second thing they pick up on is this idea of a grownups will not teach me about it. So honestly, research has shown over and over again that five-year-olds actually have racial biases. You can actually give five-year-olds 
an identical cartoon strip of an identical cartoon little girl. And she's identical in every single way except for skin tone. And you ask kids to point to the girl who is smart and point to the girl who is not smart. And a lot of children, including children of color, will associate lighter skin tones with positive attributes and darker skin tones with negative attributes. And this happens in homogenous right. areas, diverse areas, liberal areas, conservative areas. That's not what it's about. It's actually about what is in the air and in the water of our society and the privileging of lighter skin is pervasive so that's what they pick up on so my thing is we need to talk to them early and often and help them understand these are just color differences in our skin right and what makes a person is much deeper than that it's about who is kind and who shares who uh, treats you well and those kinds of thing and that can come in all kinds of shapes sizes and colors and so it's really important to treat everybody kindly and know that all colors are beautiful if you don't have explicit conversations like that they will pick up on racial bias elementary school is a prime time to talk because they haven't internalized a whole lot of the confusing messages from our society or um, haven't picked up on this the cultural taboo of talking about race so they're really open i think this is a great time to have affinity groups so are there essential things that schools should do when planning for affinity groups before starting them things that could make a major difference in their establishment? Yeah, um, you know, one of the things that I think about is, you know, obviously for middle school and high school students, it is a, you know, create a welcoming space, explain to folks what they're about. And I think when it comes to younger students, um, I'm, I am a big fan of, you know, having family affinity spaces that then open up uh, student affinity spaces because adults may understand the, the value and the power of affinity spaces, but the young people may not. In which case, having family events where, again, families who identify similarly can get together, break bread, like build relationships, uh, uh, get, gets kids a little bit excited to see the younger people who are in the same schools gathering together. Uh, that it's a lot nicer. Early affinity groups are really just about building community and relationships. Uh, because especially if you're going to dig into something that may be hard to talk about or sometimes talking about hurtful things, asking folks for a level of vulnerability is so important to build community and relationship. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, I would say, especially in high schools, um, affinity groups are almost entirely driven by young people, whether it's young people have to express interests, young people have to facilitate their groups. Um, and I really disagree with that, because ultimately, when you when you think about this idea of if we know the fundamental value of affinity groups and young people are also trying to negotiate not only their own identity, but also peer relationships and that sense of belonging in a majority that doesn't actually um, look like them or come from the same background. The idea of asking them to put themselves out there, you know, obviously some young people are great in doing that, but I think to rely on students is unfair. I think adults have to um, create that space and make that space available. If students don't walk in, that's fine. But to have students be the driver of even creating those spaces, I think it's fundamentally uh, inequitable. I totally agree. And, and piggybacking on that a bit, um, you've said so much in that we want to unpack, but we're talking a little bit about preparation. You didn't mention anything about training, but mm -hmm. you also, you touched on 
the need for secession planning, the need for mm-hmm. ownership. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to those two elements? Because I think those are those are two areas that we mm-hmm. often, I feel like, overlook. Yeah, oftentimes affinity groups come and go because of individual passions. I think that it needs to be a institutional priority, in which case, just like if you're going to have, let's say, a SEL program, you're going to hire folks who know something about it and also like uh, train maybe advisors and things like that. Uh, And then ultimately they are keeping track of making sure that curriculum happens and that pay attention to how students are doing. I think about affinity groups as one of those sort of like um, non-classroom based like curricular spaces and the curriculum is identity and belonging and equity and pride and all those kinds of things. And so, um, you know, I skipped uh, training because for me it's a given, but you're right. We have to name (laughs) that. I think oftentimes what happens is uh, an adult who's like, hey, you identify that way, go ahead and run affinity groups. And for me, I think about this idea of, you know, it, it takes a lot, right? It takes uh, this idea of holding space for young people. You got to have a little bit of teacher in you and you have to have a lot of facilitator in you, yeah. right? How do you create space? How do you um, close just enough to create safety, but really open up the airspace for folks to contribute their own stories and not dominate and become the unidirectional teacher? How do you manage the conflicts and disagreements that arise? And, uh, you know, how do you do things like advocate with the, the larger administration about what are some patterns of experience that you're noticing? What are things happening in those every day that we need to pay attention to and address so that affinity groups don't become just a come here and get your Band-Aid when you get a boo-boo, but it's also a space where we identify why the boo- where and how the boo-boos are happening and prevent them in the first place. So let's talk about for a second where the whys and hows that these things are happening. So how do racially stressful situations at school harm students and impact their learning? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I ultimately I, I think about a few things. One, um, I want to acknowledge the fact that not all children are going to respond the same way to racial stressors, right? Because there are lots of factors that go into it. I think about like personality orientations, right? Um, so for example, some children are just wired to be allocentric. They like being like other people. They don't like being different and being pointed out as different is actually stressful for them, right? And then there are idiocentric kids who actually mm-hmm. like being unique, who like going against the grain and being a little different. <laughs> like I can always tell when I have an idiocentric child because they're like, oh, I'm the only one this way. Well, I'm going to do an assembly on it. <laughs> right? Um, like, as you can imagine, the racial stressors for that child is a little bit different than a child who's like, hey, let's play. And the, uh, and, and a child says, I'm, I'm not going to want to play with you. you. You know, you're darker than me. That feels really wounding for that, for the allocentric student, right? Yeah. Um, so there's like personality orientation. And then there's actually also like, um, what kinds of um, support has been happening with parents? Because I got to say, there are plenty of parents that have conversations about what to do when somebody says something that is unkind, right? Um, Or sent them plenty of messages about you are beautiful, okay? And your hair is beautiful and your eyes are beautiful and your skin is beautiful. And don't anybody let you uh, think anything different, right? Like, 
I think about kids who have racial stressors, who have been protective and pride socialized at home versus young people who have not, right? And so, as you can imagine, that kids who have had very little protective socialization often um, experience that stress a heck of a lot more. Um, I think about this um, three-pillar approach that uh, the Perception Institute takes about um, uh, racial racialized experiences. They talk about racial anxiety and stereotype threat and uh, microaggressions as the pillars of really looking at the way bias impacts all people. And when you take a look at educational environment, like racial anxiety is like the anxiety you feel, and actually everybody feels it when they're experiencing cross-racial situations to some degree. Like people of color feel the race anxiety of, is this white person see me as somehow less than? Are they judging me? Will they treat me poorly, etc.? And then for the white person, it's like, is this is the person of color going to be perceive me as racist, as insensitive, and they're like hypersensitive to any kind of comment that might point them out as somehow racially biased, right? So there's that dynamic that gets in the way of authentic engagement. And then stereotype threat is this concept where if you belong to a group where there's a stereotype about your group and you get into a situation where you might prove it true, there's a part of you that's worried about that even at a subconscious level that you underperform, okay? So you can give equally qualified college students the same standardized academic achievement test, but if you call it a puzzle, a problem-solving task, um, there's no racial achievement gap in terms of scores. But if you say this is an academic test where it's a measure of your intellectual performance and potential, you've actually triggered racial stereotype threat because there are so many strong messages out there about the correlation between race and intelligence. So even though they're similarly academically qualified, you will see a differential in the scores between whites and blacks. Same thing with girls. If you make a girl take a math test and you have her fill out those standardized uh test gender bubbles, she will actually score statistically lower than if you just let her take the test. And that that actually starts being measurable starting fifth grade, by the way. So meaning they are aware of stereotypes and starting to absorb them by that time, right? And starting Mm -hmm. to believe that there's actually truth to that. And then implicit bias is this idea of like, people can have one intention, but oftentimes there are a whole lot of micro decisions that happen even at an uh, unconscious level that affect, right? For example, um, research has shown that uh, white teachers in classroom, when they did eye tracking studies in a classroom that is predominantly white, their eyes actually went to the black child or this child of color um, statistically much more frequently Right. Mm. And then when you combine that with other research that shows that most people in the United States perceive black children as about four years older than they actually are. Mm -hmm. And they're uh, they're, and that their motivations are often seen as less innocent. So you've got the situation where white teachers are looking at black children more, thinking they're older than they actually are and thinking whatever they're doing is actually meant to be problematic or aggressive or defiant or whatever. And there you go. There's everything right there about disproportionate disciplining and the expulsion of children of color, right? Or being funneled more for um, 
educational testing to identify yeah. uh, learning disorders. Like that's not happening because black children are not capable. That's happening because of these really well-meaning educators who don't think they have a bias bone in their body. Like that's what's <laughs> playing. Out. Amen. So Amen. we asked and you answered. That makes it abundantly clear why affinity groups are imperative in these spaces. Where are you seeing them working? Where are you seeing them being done well? What are you yeah. seeing specifically? Yeah, so the schools that I'm um, seeing them uh, do it really well is, you know, I, I, I'd, hate, I'd hate to put, toot my own horn, but my school, I think. Girl, you better toot, you know, toot, toot, um, toot. Like at Seattle Girls School, for example, like uh, we have um, so many different affinity groups, like I can never remember them all. But, um, you know, we have affinity group leaders that like gather to talk about um, why affinity groups, how to run them, what are some issues that may arise, et cetera. Like, you know, uh, so I guess there's like adult conversations that are on ongoing and we revisit and uh, share best practices and strategies and things like that. I do a little identity development workshop with them uh, to understand what are those progressions of identity and why there are times when people love themselves for who they are and there are times when folks really don't like themselves or have internalized uh, self-hatred and why that's happening and how that's mm. happening. Um, and how to, yes. how to, you know, respond to that and how to support people uh, into a more positive sense of self. Um, this is a school-wide conversation. Um, and so, mm -hmm. for example, um, the head of school announces, you know, you know, near the beginning of September, we have affinity groups. This is what they are. And this is why we find them to be a really important part of what we do. These are all the groups that are available uh, and all of yeah. the facilitators. And then we actually have an affinity fair, which is sort of like um, we do an all school <laughs> like identity claiming exercise. So you get to claim your race, ethnic heritage, religious upbringing, you know, gender, sexuality, you name it. And then there's like lots of claiming and cheering. And so we just build this like very identity positive space as an all school community. And then we have sort of like a, a college fair style of time where students can visit um, uh, spaces where affinity group leaders and students who share their identity can get together and talk about what is this affinity group? What do you do? Uh, you know, so that the new students are actually learning about what the older students gain from that space just gives a, a much safer way, a comfortable way to sort of like check out that space. And then we launch affinity groups. So right? wait, wait, wait. So you said you have a lot. How many are we talking? And, and I'm asking because <laughs> is there such a thing as too many? Are there prerequisites for even starting them? And how do you measure whether or not they're being impactful? And I want to yeah. add to that before you jump in, Rosetta. Like, uh -huh. I've been places where there are all kinds of ridiculous affinity right, groups. Right. Like, uh -huh. I won't Purple name them because right because then they'll know. <laughs> and then there's that piece of white members of the community pushing back and mm -hmm. saying, "Well, shouldn't we have the white affinity club?" So mm -hmm. get at it. Tell us. Yep. Whoo. Uh, so uh, <laughs> so we have race-based affinity groups. Um, we have multiracial affinity group. We have Latinx affinity group. Um, we also have like religion-based affinity groups. I guess it's like religion and ethnicity because uh, like ultimately Jewish identity is very complex, right? Some people actually 
um, see it as a religious identity, others see it as an ethnic identity. And then we have uh, gender and sexuality-based affinity groups, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have the alphabet affinity because the kids were like <laughs> LGBTQIATT, like there are too many letters. So we're the alphabet affinity. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but so have you come across an instance where there are too many? And again, how are you, you measuring yeah. whether or not mm -hmm. they're impactful? Uh, for me, like the measurement of impact uh, can be in the way kids talk more comfortably about who they are, right? right. Like, for example, I think about how uh, one student started coming to Asian Pacific Islander Affinity Group. Um, she hated talking about her eyes, right? Mm. And if people asked her to like describe her eyes, she would always say, my almond shaped eyes. Mm. And uh, one day our, her mom uh, emailed me and said, I just read a piece of poem that uh, she wrote and it said something along the, the lines of like the, the deep uh, dark pool of my Asian eyes. And she's like, that's the first time my child has talked about her Asian-ness and her eyes in a way that is like affirming, right? Um, I know that it's working when uh, young people speak up and advocate for what they need, not just in the in the safety and comfort of affinity spaces, but also in the larger community, whether it's speaking up with peers or speaking up with teachers or advocating for um, accommodations or adjustments or asking like more critical questions about where were pe people who look like me during this time? Like we've learned about this time period, but like you so far, you haven't talked about anybody who looks like me, right? Mm -hmm. Can I ask more about that? Um, I also uh, know that it's working when actually kids feel comfortable connecting across all kinds of differences. Honestly, especially during middle school, a common phenomenon that happens is that kids start actually forming unofficial, unmitigated affinity spaces, like the Asian table and the white table and the nerd table yeah. and the theater table, like whatever it is, right? And when students know that they have that affinity space to do some of that identity exploration, they're actually more comfortable and more secure in themselves to interact and befriend people who are from all over the place, yep. right? Rather than stay in that safety and comfort of people who look like me. It's um, also really important to distinguish that affinity groups need to move beyond the celebrations. Black student affinity groups are not there to plan Black History Month every year. It's about all that important work that you're just naming. And so as schools are considering and setting up, they need to really dig deep as to what they are setting up rather than that surface level nonsense. And I love what she just said, though, because it really speaks to the importance of representation. Mm -hmm. How do you find that mm -hmm. official or unofficial affinity space if you're the only one? Right. In that light, Rosetta, what do you have to say to schools who have yet to offer any kind of affinity spaces? Um, what would you want them to know? What do you think they should be doing? Yeah, and I guess my, my question always is this. I understand that there's a lot of nervousness. I understand that there's a lot of pushback, especially from white folks, straight folks, rich folks, whatever, right? Whenever you like try to support a historically marginalized group, typically the historically privileged group will push back, right? And mm -hmm. I get that. And 
Um, we know, we know from decades of research, uh, the negative impacts uh, psychologically, emotionally, academically, etc., of kids who are from historically marginalized groups who are also in the minority in our schools. We know this. And we know from early research and from anecdotal evidence that affinity groups really help. It increases that sense of belonging and ownership of the school and feeling supported by the school and feeling like I have the ability and the confidence and the gifts to contribute to this community. We know that that happens. So my thing is, if you don't want to do affinity groups, that's fine. But what are you doing mm -hmm. uh, that has been shown to increase all of those things for our children? And for me, choosing not to have affinity groups without commensurate sort of like responses for this is how we're increasing that sense of belonging and identity support and empowerment and ownership, then I think it's just negligent. You mentioned that there's resistance and pushback from majority populations. Can you mm -hmm. speak to the people yeah. about tried and true responses to that pushback? Yeah. A common pushback that I hear is, well, how come there isn't a white affinity group, right? Correct. Um, and so my thing is, okay, so when I look around the school community, right, and I see that a board that is predominantly white, an administration that's predominantly white, a faculty staff that's predominantly white, a student body that's predominantly white, and a curriculum that predominantly features white identities, just because we don't say George Washington, a white president, does not mean we're not talking about whiteness there, right? And so when I think about affirming stories and complexities and mm -hmm. two-dimensional ways that uh, white folks are in presented as individuals, like that's basically every day, <laughs> right? What is the deficit and the invisibility you're trying to address mm -hmm. through affinity groups? Because I got to tell you, I had, you know, a, a young man uh, who was like, why can't we have a golfer's affinity group? I'm like, if you can show me that being a golfer in the school results in lower sort of self-esteem, lower academic outcome or less sense of belonging or higher attrition rates and leaving of the community among golfers, I think you should have a, a golfer's affinity group. But the reality is that's not what's happening. And that speaks to the fact that so many people think it's just a club. Yes, exactly. Right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So can you say that one more time just for clarity's sake? When looking at assessing mm -hmm. which affinity groups need mm -hmm. to happen, people yeah. should be looking at... Yeah, people should be looking at, you know, which are the communities that have historically struggled to feel a sense of belonging in this community. It's a numerical minority that often doesn't see that mirroring all throughout the ranks uh, of the school, um, and especially meaningful representation in the curriculum. And folks who are not part of, like, the de decision-making um, places, uh, who, are the, who are the folks who are coming to our school and fighting this cultural tide of marginalization. Like I think about sometimes our schools can actually replicate systems that are outside or we can actually do something to combat that wave. So if the wave, right, 
uh, says, if you have a learning difference, you're less than, then how do we have a learning difference as a affinity group that tells you you are smart, your brain processes inf information differently, but you are capable. And mm -hmm. we can talk about strategies that help you tap into that excellence, but don't let anyone tell you that you're less smart than anybody else, right? Yeah. When you have a positive sense of identity, it increases all kinds of measures that we want in schools like academic achievement and like psychological health, even fewer sick days. So for me, like this idea of like positive, not chauvinistic, but positive, because there's a difference between this is who I am and I'm proud of who I am versus this is who I am and I'm better than everyone mm, else. Right. Yes. But pride, like you can do in abundance. Right. And the affinity spaces that are necessary for dominant groups is actually folks who are interested in challenging that, that supremacy. Because um, my school, for example, has a examining our white privilege affinity group. Ultimately, it's actually um, a group of white students and a white educator who's working in solidarity with people of color to hold ourselves accountable and actually using the book that's titled uh, This Book is Anti-Racist to work through some of the ways um, that whiteness is pervasive and what can we do as white people to contribute to racial justice and not burden people of color to to teach us, right? Yeah. Um, so for me, I think that's a really important space for white people. Right. No, absolutely. So could you tell us how you would advise parents who are advocating in their schools to create these types of spaces? What can they be saying to their school that you think will make the difference to get them going? The question I would be asking is, you know, you say you value our family and you say you value the presence of my child. Can you tell me how that shows up in these areas? Like, okay, it's great that you have a mission statement, yeah. right? And diversity is one of the pillars of the strategic plan. That's policy and that's great. Yeah. Can you tell me about the programs that are designed yeah. to affirm my child and the and the presence of our family absolutely um what's in the curriculum do you have affinity groups uh what are those annual ways that we celebrate and welcome diversity like n not in the international foods festivals kind Amen. of way but like celebrating black history not just as the first or the only yeah. but also like what are the the struggles that this month is actually trying to ele elevate uh, and the ongoing brilliance that the black community has contributed to the world, right? And then I think about practice, like, uh, you know, so when racial microaggressions happen, um, what is your policy? Like, what is your response to bias incidents? Like, can you tell me about your practices, right? right. Um, I also think about like, how often do you do things like climate assessments? Which communities are thriving and which communities are struggling and what are you doing about it? And how are you like doing this work, um, this capacity building among board members and admin and, you know, where are the resources, right? Mm -hmm. um, do you give it time? Do you give it a budget? Do you give it staffing, right? Because for a school to say something is important but not have those is actually, I don't believe them, right? right? If you tell me we really believe in math, but we don't have a math program, we don't have a math department chair, we don't have math teachers, we don't have math classes, <laughs> we don't buy math textbooks or right. do professional development, and we don't assess math, but we really find math important, I wouldn't believe you. Just like I'm not sure that I believe that my presence here and diversity and inclusion and equity and justice is a priority for you until I see it in these places. 
Rosetta, we talked about the different types of affinity groups. So there's the student affinity groups and mm-hmm. there's parent affinity groups mm-hmm. and family affinity groups. Can you speak a little bit to mm-hmm. the differences and the fact that if a school has parent and family affinity groups, that they should be exploring student affinity groups as well? <laughs> uh, ultimately, a school thrives when um, people at all those levels, board, admin, faculty, staff, students, parents, alums, etc. right? And so for me, I think there can be like affinity spaces at all levels to con- to continue to express the thriving of all those communities, right? And so, for example, even my a head of school, who's a black woman, like participates in administrators of color or heads of color cohorts. That's an affinity space, right? And then we have a faculty, uh, people of color affinity group among the faculty and staff. Um, in the parent body, uh, we actually have like parents of color for people who identify as color and we also have spaces and events for parents of children of Mm. color for example a white parent who's part of a multiracial union or a white parent who has adopted a child of color ultimately they need to be equipped too but i would say that's more of an equipment space rather than an affinity space right that's more of like a training space Mm -hmm. and a strategizing space of how do i support my baby who is a person of color in this world right so for me like each time you have spaces like that in every single tier folks who identify from those groups do better in that tier so again if you want families to thrive like how are we making sure that our students thrive amen and like i said if you don't want to do affinity group i just want to know what are you what are you doing that has been shown to have those positive outcomes i'm not blanket pusher of affinity groups i just want to know what's being done and that is totally (laughs) fair and that's why i love that approach because it's really you're not making it about affinity spaces you're making it about so much more rosetta 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 (laughs) thank you so much for joining us you know what i love about you one of the things i love Rosetta is not stingy her, <laughs> with her information and her and energy. And her resources. Yes, this ma'am. woman has so many fabulous resources that she makes available to everyone. <laughs> and we are going to have links to her resources in the show notes, which can be found on ErasePodcast.com. Rosetta, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for hosting me. It was great your time. <laughs> Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks. But in the meantime, please remember to hit subscribe, rate and review us, especially on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We're at Erased Podcast with a C. I'm your co-host, Colette Bowers-In. And I'm Lisa Johnson. We'll see you in the next episode of Erased. Thanks again to our guest, Rosetta Lee. Mm-hmm.